Welcome to another episode of Theology on Mission. This is a special 500-year Remembrance of the Reformation crossover episode between Theology on Mission and New Persuasive Words. New Persuasive Words is hosted by our good friends Scott Jones and Bill Borrow. And we're so glad to be teaming up with them. Scott uh, it will introduce uh, the crossover episode in just a minute. I hope you all enjoy this episode. And I will be back next week with another regular Theology on Mission with Dave Fitch and Jeff Holzclaw. See you then. Gentlemen, welcome to the New Persuasive Words Theology on Mission first ever crossover episode. And we're all four of us involved. We've actually had some semi-crossovers we before, have, but yeah. never with all four. And it's just like in Ghostbusters, if we're crossing the stream <laughs> and we spontaneously combust or something, I will hope for posterity's sake, somewhere, at least part of this recording lives in the digital archives. Yeah. It's our way of marking 500 years of reformed and not quite getting there reformed. That's exactly. My, that's my... That's my uh, Fractured Latin. Now. 500 years of Christendom 2.0, new and improved. Here we go. <laughs> so here we are. So will we wait another 500 years before we do a new Persuasive Words Theology on Mission crossover? It might be. It uh, might after be. This, it depends how this goes. <laughs> <laughs> hey, can I ask a question? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, oh, here, asking questions. Uh, why are we doing this? Because it's the day after reformation day it's 500 years yesterday i guess if oh. we're is there any time oh. zone where and so we're still are you australia guys like the, uh, the, are you guys the good are you guys the good guys or the bad guys in this podcast dave see what i've learned from yes, your work learned what i've learned work. is the danger of framing things antagonistically so I don't tend to look at things as far as good guys or bad guys or we're all people seeking the truth, right? We yeah. we seek and submit one another to right. to yeah. Jesus and to the truth made manifest. That's right. That's right. All we are saying is give the peace church a chance. That's all we're saying. Really. Exactly. <laughs> no, I actually, you know, and I think George Hunsinger yesterday called for the end of the end of the Reformation. So it's just our way of joining into the uh, to uh, the rally, I guess, uh, to the to the wall, to the Bastille, right? <laughs> George has the most idiosyncratic doctrinal formulations, which he thinks are. I mean, I'm not saying they're bad or silly or anything like that, but they're just they're pretty idiosyncratic. But he's kind of like, well, this can speak for the whole speak church, the whole- so it should. That's- <laughs> So I'm sure there's a patriarch from Constantinople from like the 12th century that would agree with him. So, absolutely. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. All right, but that's going way past uh, the the Reformation. I'm sorry. Back, back there. This is Bob. Bill, sorry, not Bob. I always call you Bob because you – I don't know why I call you Bob. Yeah. Anyways, so Dave, you because just – I'm, I'm, I'm just not important enough to know my name. So I don't really know what you're saying there. Oh, your last name goes B. Well, not that you have Boro, so it's B. Oh, so, yeah. anyways, yeah. hey, but Dave, so about the Reformation, didn't you just give lectures, or you're about to give lectures on uh, the Reformation? I gave one lecture at a Reformation person, a title I really like, by the way. The idea that Reformation is the uh, birth child of Christendom, and especially the Magisterial Reformation, and therefore it is completely, totally irrelevant for those of us who are caught <laughs> in post-Christendom. Oh, there we go. Well, yeah. that, that, well then, uh, good having you guys on the show. I guess that's, <laughs> that settles it all. Uh, David, you heard it here, has declared the end of both the Magisterial Reformation and Christendom, yeah. It's the nuance of that position yeah, I, I think respect. It really, yeah, it is the nuance, yeah. I mean, 
really the yeah. only thing that uh, is worth talking about right now is all the things we can blame on the Reformation. You know, you have, uh, anabaptism. Yep. <laughs> so, yeah, yep. Ouch, ouch. Okay, but hey, you know, you have the unintended consequences. It was all Zwingli's fault. <laughs> no, really, you Brad, know. Brad Gregory, you have. And we would have sent you, you bread. All this other- While you were in Munster, we would have sent you food. I just want you to know that we would have thrown, we just, we just sent you letters, <laughs> snuck in some beer or something for you. And we would have, we would have, we would have testified on your behalf right before they put you in that cage. We would have, we really would have. All right, but seriously though, because Dave, you just added yourself as the bad cop now on this podcast, even though you were trying to make Scott and Bill the bad cop. So why don't you fill out uh, your two, three reasons for being to say it against the Reformation? Uh, I just said it's against it. I just Bill and Scott can respond for being for the Reformation. He just said it's completely irrelevant now. That's. Well, like I said, why talk about it anymore? Uh, but, um, okay, so uh, I think my main proposal was that the Reformation uh, transported over the ocean. Um, a lot of things happened to it. Uh, uh, you know, Bonhoeffer wrote that article, Protestantism Without the Reformation, on his first visit uh, to New York City. And he basically said, um, you know, transported across the ocean. Um Stanley, uh, my my dog is bothering me. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> the dog is no one, can, no one can see this. It's a shame uh, we're not doing this. Uh, we're not doing a, okay. a Facebook Live on this one because this that would be the best. It would be month. incredible. Yeah, it would be incredible. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But go ahead. Okay. okay. Basically, uh, the Reformation transported across the ocean has no pure ch- or no has no impure church to protest against. It's kind of left on its own. Now in the frontier, at least in the Euro mind, the wild frontier, with nothing left, nothing to provide the resources or substance to form a church, which now finds itself in mission 500 years later. That was my argument. And so I'll give you an example. The visible-invisible church distinction. I know that was originally with Augustine, but, you know, it wasn't until uh, Zwingli, uh, uh, Wycliffe, maybe even Luther himself, that pushed this to an important thing. Because we now got to figure out how people can be Christians without being uh, members of the one true church that is now corrupt. But you take a... You push the invisible church and take it overseas, and now we don't have the ability to have an ecclesiology that can witness to a way of life visibly, show a way of life, show the gospel before a world that doesn't know what it is anymore. I, so I, would, I, would, I would actually say that that missiologically, <laughs> the exact opposite is true. That if a, okay. think, a thinker like Tomas Halik, who's a Roman Catholic, can work with something like uh, like revelations of God outside the church, revelations of the triune God, not as the triune God, even among atheists. And so, I mean, I think something like, you don't have to use visible and invisible uh, terms exactly, but something like the difference between the church militant, uh, the church in the in the here and now, in the already, and the church in the not yet, and I think that the boundaries of the fullness of God, you know all the people of God gathered in is certainly not going to look the same as it looks here to us who are you know look at the membership of the church solely in terms of uh, what we the people we can see in concrete political entities. There's certainly people that are. That God is doing redemptive things through, you know, they're unwitting witnesses to the gospel that I think have to be accounted for in some way. So I think that actually that thing tweaked the right way would actually have the utmost relevance in post-Christian missiology. 
I completely disagree. <laughs> there you go. All right. All right. Well, we completely disagree with each other. There you go. I like that. That makes for some podcasting. Let's, let's, let's take it one, one more step further. Uh, uh, let's take uh, Luther's uh, uh, Two Kingdoms, uh, his uh, justification by faith, uh, his basically interiorizing uh, life at, with Christ. Now, I realize he had a little more, more of a uh, theosis. There are a lot more nuances to it than that, but go ahead. Right, right, right. I know, but once, okay, my point is, with all you Reformation dudes, I'm not complaining about uh, Calvin. Can, can, I just, can I just say, aren't you a Protestant as well? Or did you cross the Tiber since we last spoke? So are, you're, you're a okay. Protestant dude as well, right? Unless you unless you are in communion with Constantinople or Rome and didn't tell yeah, us. You're in the Christian Missionary Alliance, right? There. Right. So, I mean, that would be, you would be part of the Protestant. Yes. I'm just, I'm just, unless. I, just so know. our listeners know. Yeah, we just, I'm just. Why are you because you call us, us why Protestant are you guys. this up? I'm just, I belong. No, I know. I mean, you're saying us Protestant guys, if there's something you want, maybe you will hear it first on New Persuasive Exactly. Words. We broke the story. Right. We like to hear it. So, uh, uh, well, I am, like to make I am a Catholic that, Christian little C. As are we. As are we. So, but I'm still saying if you're not in communion with Rome and you're not in Constantinople, and or you haven't become a Mormon, you probably. Coptic are, Orthodox? Coptic. Well, uh, yeah, Coptic, Coptic Orthodox. Church. So, anyway, but. We're just saying that in some levels, whether we're protesting Catholics, small p, small c, we're not still in communion with the Church of Rome, or, of course, Constantinople doesn't exist anymore, but you know what I mean. So that's what I'm... <laughs> it's all actually schismatics. Yes, yes. Yeah, exactly. and, and I would argue that they are too. So I'm not saying that we're they're the true church and we're the schismatic. I would say the body of Christ is broken, and we're all in schism right now. Okay. All right. Um, I don't know what that sound was. All right, Dave. So, what was your point there? Now that we've clarified that we're all schismatics. Well, um, okay. I was starting to say that I'm really not going to try to blame Calvin, blame Luther. I might blame Zwingli, but you know, I'm not going to go back to this, these, these, the original writings and the original um, cultural context of the magisterium, because I think actually a lot of what they said, did, and reformed made sense in that Euro context. However, take it across the ocean. Now you have a lack of ability resources to shape a people, a church, a way of life, a corporate witness to the gospel when there is no more common language, when we are when we haven't got the magisterium backing us up with the uh with an army and the peasants revolt. When we haven't got this, when we haven't got that, we're basically all out on our own. And now we have to figure out a way to be a people manifesting the presence of God and his kingdom among us so the rest of the world can see and be invited into. We don't have the resources because they interiorized the faith. They made the church uh, invisible and, and, and they even made scripture uh, a authority unto itself, which again transported across the ocean. Now we're all left to our inerrant, uh, verbally inspired uh, self-interpretations of whatever we want Scripture to mean, and we have no way to navigate truth. Okay, boom. How are you going to respond to that? That's everything that went wrong. You know, we can even blame Donald Trump at this point on the Reformation. I think that you're describing uh, hyper- Protestant Baptist at a place like Trinity Evangelical Day School more than anything in the 16th century. 
<laughs> but if we're yeah. going to describe DNA uh, that way. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I was, was going to say. Uh, yeah, I was kind of trying to. I was following it, but then you lost me. Because, and by the way, by what, I, are you saying so everything that happened on the other side of the ocean, let's say how well Christianity did in the 17th century in Europe? Uh, I, I, don't, I don't necessarily. I mean, on some level, you're not, in, you're not in, inferring that what happened in the 17th and 18th century in Europe and Christianity would be the model that we should have held the post over here, given, right. the, yeah, like the 30-year war, for instance, things like that. You know, I mean, the fact, yeah, yeah the fact of the matter is I, I just think you're, <clears throat> I mean, I think what's, what I think what formed Christianity over this, on this continent is much more complex than all of that. But nonetheless, uh, you have pointed to which, some which, of the, you have pointed to some of the uh, unfortunate children of the Reformation and things like, um, you know, the, a particular view of the Bible, maybe an over-pietistic faith, uh, which certainly has been part of your tradition. I mean, the, the, the streams in which have formed you as well, has formed me. I'm not saying, I, I've not been shaped by those as well. I'm also very thankful for those pietists who taught me the love of Jesus and the forgiveness of sin and the importance of personal prayer uh, and living the Christian life and loving my neighbor. I, I am very thankful for those I'm not pies. thankful for any of that. <laughs> <laughs> Jeff, uh, I think you should jump in here a little bit. Well, so Dave Fitch, I'm just, you know, I'm sitting here posting pictures about our wonderful uh, podcast here that we're doing. I think, so for me, the Reformation... So for me, uh, the Reformation... Uh, oops, sorry, I was hearing an echo there. For me, the like if we were to talk about like the the five solas um, or however many there are, um, <laughs> is I think that well no because I mean sometimes there's four. Yeah, I know, I know, I know, I know. So is that uh, they are a contextualized response of theology to a certain context, uh, like Dave was saying, you know, to an established not just an established but like you know an, an empire type church. Um, but those, for various reasons, uh, may be default with Luther and Calvin, but, you know, really not, but just the historical circumstances and their followers, um, have become, in my mind, like a, a contextual uh, kind of framework now that people rally around. And, you know, and this is where I think we get back to the championing of reforming and always reforming. So, uh, and that's where I would want to stand, kind of on the contextual or missional kind of angle is, thank God for the Reformation. Uh, maybe I wouldn't state it the way. Dave did, but yeah, but on on some levels, it's not as relevant to the continuing mission of the church in its systemized form, but maybe in the spirit of the Reformation, we still need to hold on to. So those are the those are some of the ways I would go. So I, you know, I'd love for us to rethink in our North American context. Are there other solas that we need to affirm or grab onto, or things like that? No, I, I would agree. I think in terms of is it's the, you know it's the job of every generation to kind of make sense of their of the what's timeless and timely about the gospel. And I think in some levels, the 16th century is a uniquely rich century with some really amazing people. Actually, um, you know, we've only been talking about Protestants, but it was a remarkably religious age, and some of the some of the most amazing lights in terms of uh, the Catholic Church were of that century as well. You know, I'm thinking of Teresa of Avila, John of the Cross, uh, Francis de Sales, uh, and of course Ignatius of Loyola. So, I mean, I think the it was a, an amazing time of spiritual flowering that um, the impact of that century, both in Roman Catholic circles as well as the various Protestant streams, um, some of the great fruit 
of the power of these minds and these lives, still we still benefit from that. And I think um, to me, again, you know, I've always, I've, I just, you know, I wish Calvin's Calvinists would read Calvin. I wish uh, Lutherans <laughs> would, uh, you know, just not use one particular formula to interpret the creative, um, the creative as well as troubled um, work of Luther. Um, and so I, I think uh, I think all those things would be, you know, in, in some levels, I, I, you know, the the trouble we have now, and again, I, you know, we all spend time in theological education, and I'm, you know, I'm teaching this semester as well. Uh, I again, I, I am deeply concerned about the theological foundation that the next generation of pastors are bringing to the table, and I think part of that is the seminary's fault. They have dumbed down, you know, seminaries have dumbed down curriculum, and and part of that reason is because the churches are sending them folks who don't know things. And so I, I do think that in part of going forward is, is this, you know, the same task that was going on in the Reformation. They were re-looking at the Bible. They were re-looking at Augustine. Um, they were re-looking what it went to be the church. And I think that creative process, um, you know, some of the best people who ever did that lived in that century. Um, I think that's a different approach than trying to cast them in stone and being a ism of some sort or the other. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What do you think, Scott? The contextual I, name of the Reformation. Do we lose Fitch there, by the way, on the Skype thing? Oh, Dave, are you still there? I'm still here. Oh, okay. I'm just, your voices are breaking up, so I had to turn my camera off, hopefully uh, getting a clear feed. I got you. I like that. Well, yeah, we have a picture f- of you looking like you're in ecstasy, actually. It's very, it's very moving. <laughs> it is very moving. It reminds me a little bit of St. Teresa. Charismatic Fitch. Yeah, really. No, I mean, it looks like God has spoken directly to you, so I, I, it makes me want to pray more. Go ahead. Yeah, Scott. I think two things that are exceedingly relevant today, more, you know, just as much as they were 500 years ago. My friend Simeon Zoll wrote four things about Luther's theology uh, recently, and uh, sort of bullet point like paragraphs about why he's been reading Luther for years, and he's like, here it's 500 anniversary, anniversary of the Reformation. Here's the things he thought were irrelevant. I'll just read a couple sentences from two of them. First, he said Luther's distinction between law and gospel loosely held, and it's apparent, loosely held, loosely held, and experientially effectively understood remains one of the most powerful diagnostic tools for making sense of what people I see around me actually do in their lives. All the anxious striving and why it so rarely feels like enough and for explaining the power of Christianity as a clear-eyed but utterly compassionate response to this. And the second thing he says is, in this next point, he says, the theology of the cross as expressed with such simplicity and depth in the Heidelberg Disputation seems to be to match the reality of life as it is very often actually experienced by human beings in the world better than any other such category I've come across. God can only be found in suffering and the cross, which is in the proof of Thesis 21. Whatever their tradition or anti-tradition, students always respond to this extraordinary text, which is, I think, paradigmatic, the paradigmatic example of Luther's art. And I think those two jewels alone yeah. are the, the, this understanding of the difference between do and done, <laughs> like, um, and the fact that the gospel moves from indicative to imperative, not from imperative to indicative. That and the sense that that I mean, so much. I think one of the things we would agree on, Fitch, is that so much of evangelical Protestantism preaches a theology about the cross, not a theology of the cross. It, it, it really, what Luther would say, is it's a theology of glory. It's the sort of uh, human apotheosis in, in the in the form of a kind of atonement theology, or just you know that that hey, we're the right people, you're the wrong people. Right. And so I think that that the theology of cross that that undergirds a suffering church that really holds on to the gem of the finished work of Christ. I think that is more missiologically relevant now than ever. 
Well, uh, uh, Scott, I agree with you. I agree with you. Those are two uh, wonderful themes of Luther and Lutheran theology. Okay, but what I'm most concerned about, I mean, oh, yes, I I buy into the theology of the cross, of, of that God works in and through suffering, especially after reading, by the way, Greg Boyd's latest crucifixion, The Warrior of God. But having said all that, I'm focused on ecclesiology, and since I see a key ecclesiology is absolutely essential to mission, when we are no longer living in, say, an established church world, where we don't have to worry about ecclesiology, it's kind of just enforced as part of a cultural construct. Okay, the, would you not agree the Reformation left us impoverished when it comes to the ability to shape an ecclesiology? Yeah, yes and no. I think that that the people that have an easy, the easiest time with what is the church, at least with precision, are Rome and Constantinople and your average Southern Baptist. <laughs> so if you equate the organization and the organism, because churches are both, right? There's a, there's a dimension there, the, the reality. If you equate them like you do with Rome or the East, or you completely divide them the way your average sort of low church Southern Baptist does, then it's not a very messy affair. I think for everybody else... I, pre and post Christendom trying to figure out in between those poles the what what exactly the nature of the already not yetness gathered people of God is is a little messy. So yeah, and I, I, I think that's messy in most traditions. And I think that yeah, I, I wouldn't I, I think that you could consciously distance yourself from the Reformation tradition of the 16th century and still have a really tough time with that. Well and I also think, you know, there was great theology of the church, uh, certainly Calvin has a great theology of the church. Luther says some magnificent things about the church. Uh, the Carolingian divines say some very great things about the church. It's one of my favorite Motown bands, the, the Carolingian, Carolingian divines. divines. <laughs> <laughs> used to open for Gladys with, Knight and the Pips. With, uh, with their hit, Oh, Charles, We Miss Your Head. You know, that was, <laughs> that was their hit. But, um, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> there was, like, what, only six people got that joke? Yeah. <laughs> anyway, but... Uh, uh, no, but I do think the trouble is how do you implement it, you know, uh, the implementation of it. And I think even – so that's the, the, there's a sense where there is – you come out of Protestantism with a kind of volunteerism. And that's, you know, it's kind of – it's the nature of – it's part of why Protestantism and the modern world walk hand in hand. So the weaknesses of modernity um, – you could argue some of the strengths of modernity are the strengths of Protestantism as well as the weaknesses. And uh, so I, I do – you know, I think, for instance, I love that uh, John, John Henry Newman – you know, this. I mean, there's a wonderful uh, idea of what the church is in the Anglican story. Newman goes to prove it historically and theologically, and ends up becoming a Roman Catholic because he couldn't prove it because it was a it was a fiction. So, I mean, the Episcopal tradition is a wonderful fiction, but it is a fiction. And so, you know, I, you know, and I mean, you know, and, and uh, that's part of it. I think that's part of the problem. And certainly, you know, I have I was fed in the Wesleyan tradition and spent some wonderful years at a great Mennonite church. But the, uh, you know, the same thing is true in, in, in those traditions as well. They have the same kind of issues. And uh, part of it is, I think, a lack of a kind of sacramental view of the church, which we just don't really have have in the Protestant communion, or at least we don't have a, we don't have it, we can have it as a notion, we can have it, we, you know, you and I can say at our congregations, we have a sacramental view, but the trouble is it's it's not connected to anything, you know, the play between the organism and the organization is a very real and helpful and necessary one, and we just don't, don't have that in Protestantism. So, 
Uh, yeah, I would agree with that too. And this is where, you know, I'm like the add on to this conversation because I don't study the Reformation a lot. I am much more interested in the ancient church, Augustine and others and things like that. And, and, and that's where I see a high sacramental understanding of the church is really integrated with the practices of the Eucharist and things like that. <clears throat> but when I, but I was just teaching. What church are you talking about, by the way? Dave Fitch here, for those who are listening. I'm challenging Holtzclaw. What I, church are you are you talking about the ancient patristic? Are you talking about Augustine? Who are you talking about? Yeah, from the close of the New Testament up through Augustine and beyond. Because um, it seems uh, that the height of the ecclesiology that you're talking about was not in the patristics, but it was in somewhere around the 13th, 12th and 13th century when it all came together and was consolidated, consolidated in this very efficient Roman Catholicism Imperium Church. Now, I, well, would, I would say, no. what Jeff is saying would describe how the Cappadocians saw the Church, it would describe how Augustine, so that would be how the 4th century, the 5th century, both in East and West would have understood themselves. So go ahead, Jeff. News, breaking news here on the Theology and Mission and New Persuasive Words crossover. I'm, so Dave Fitch and I do getting not agree. marginalized here. Dave Fitch and I do not agree on everything. So I would say, yeah. what, did, what did Reinhold Niebuhr say, too? In the 16th century, the Catholics took Augustine's ecclesiology, while the Protestants took the soteriology. <laughs> right. We'll split Augustine right down the middle. That's right. It's like, it's, 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 it was a, it was one, it's, it's like a typical divorce. Exactly. It didn't work out. Yeah. 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 <laughs> the kids suffer, namely Augustine. So, but, okay. But that, that wasn't even leading to my main point is I was just teaching this, uh, maybe as a way to mitigate the pros and cons of the Reformation is, you know, I was teaching this uh, church and culture class. We were reviewing the history of the church, going from the ancient church all the way up to the modern medieval and all that. And, you know, and I was talking with the students to say, hey, it's like we need to be able to tell two stories of the Reformation and really two stories of all of church history. One story is people motivated by faith with, you know, and, and in charity, believing uh, the best of them, people like Luther, Calvin, even Zwingli, although it seems like nobody on this podcast likes Zwingli, which I count myself among them. And uh, <laughs> and so we, we need to be able to tell a story of someone like Luther, who out of love for the church and deep passion for God and not wanting to be a schismatic, although all, we all are now, um, was trying to reform the church, right? And, right. and we tell that story um, and celebrate the positive impact and the things that he was able to accomplish. We can also tell another story of social cultural history that says things like, well, the technological developments of the printing press or the social developments and the end of feudalism or the economic developments and um, exploration and things like this, that, that they were, that social actors saw what Luther was doing and decided that there was a huge political and social benefit to backing him and they didn't care about the theology at all. And, they yeah. just wanted it would have to... gone better for John Huss if he had some German princes. <laughs> a checklist of a checklist. Was a checklist. It's, hey, it's hey, tougher there. If he could have just had one German <laughs> prince. One, one would have been good. One would have been good. Yeah. So I think if we could tell both of these stories and say they're both like true and there's benefits to them. And I think, you know, the breaking up of the church and it being hijacked by uh, nationalism and uh, statism and certain economic policies and these types of things, you know, that that happened too. And I know. Uh, when Dave and I talk about the Reformation, it's it's these Christendom questions and issues where the church didn't really make a break with all the powers that be. They just kind of rearranged them. And, uh, and for us, that's where, you know, the Reformation is not over yet. Have we fully extricated ourselves from those things? So that's how I like think about these things, because a lot of times when, you know, Dave does his whole slamming the whole Reformation, then people are like, yeah, but what Luther did was good. And it's like, yeah, but we can say both of those things. No, I, I, could- I completely agree. And I think that what enables that 
kind of dialectical view is something like Luther's Simus, the Simus Epicotter, at the same time sinner and saint, which I think actually you can see roots of that in the eschatology of Jesus. When John the Baptist, like most apocalyptic Jews, Second Temple Judaism is preaching kind of not yet, but soon. So if we kind of prepare, we'll be ready for what's coming, which is the day of the Lord. And Jesus kind of switches it to not not yet, but soon, but already and not yet, which I think makes space for a, a both andness. It, it makes space for something breaking in and yet still limping along the way. And so I think I, I think that kind of framework it, it, it is well suited. You're right, Jeff, to understand lots of the history of the church, because I think that's always true about the church. It's always sort of on the way. It's always the pilgrim people. It's always a foretaste of something new, and yet it, it, it seems like it bears you know, the, the marks of life east of Eden at the same time. I think the other thing we have to remember, too, even when you, you there is no, it's more complicated than power bad, church good. I mean, um, Charles I, the emperor, the Holy Roman Emperor, was a devout man, as well as a man who cared about power and how to wield it. Uh, Henry VIII, uh, um, you know, was as, as a much more mixed character. You know, we, we are colored by the fact that he is portrayed in a modern kind of way, but he was a deeply devout person uh, who, um, you know, had, you know, was a compromised person. But it's, it's, you know, to kind of impose a post or a modernist view on those rulers. I mean, even Constantine, your favorite, Jeff, uh, or, or not Jeff, I mean, Dave. But, uh, <laughs> you know, I mean, Constantine was a piety. The piety was real. Now, again, I, I'm not saying that you know gives him a pass for killing his wife or his son. Uh, Donald Trump, piety real? Uh, I'll take Constantine any day. I'll, I'll take Constantine for 400. All right, not I'll, I'll skip the Donald Trump category, but I do think just like us. I mean, even you know the the, the fact of the matter, some of the most passive aggressive people I've ever been around are pacifists. So you know, I, you know, so there's a sense where people spend their whole time. Some of them are not even just passive aggressive. They're just aggressive They're just aggressive. aggressive. <laughs> So, okay, so am I ever going to get a – if you could see my picture now, I had to turn it off because of communication problems, but if you could see my picture, I've been shaking my head for the last, oh, uh, five minutes. Yeah, just Thank keep you. the picture up, Fitch. Keep the picture up. <laughs> which way are you shaking now? We don't – you have to give us which way – which way is the head shaking? Really, well, you can do better than Pete Lightheart, can't you? Right now, please, give us more than Pete Lightheart. Constantine was a great guy. He exercised power in the most generous way. Oh, come on, Bill. Give us more than that. I want to say did something. I, I didn't, did I say he was a great guy? I just admitted that he killed his wife and his son. I don't He's think, a very kind this guy that killed his wife. Uh, uh, you know, uh, you can't make an omelet well, without I, breaking yeah, a few eggs. Not, <laughs> you know, not ev- not everyone not everyone can can be as as holy as you guys. I've, you know, it's just sometimes some of us are a little more mixed. Okay, can we at least get to uh, a vote? Wait a minute, a, a Anabaptist vote. you're the most the, the neo in Anabaptist. The accents on Neo. <laughs> okay. Do we at least come to a, uh, a group consensus? No, wait. I thought you said a moat. So are they going to drown us in the moat as the Anabaptists? Is that where That's we're going? Funny. Jeff, don't try to be funny, okay? It doesn't go <laughs> Okay. Do we at least have a consensus? On my narrative, which is this, the Reformation was good. It accomplished some things in Europe. It had it, it sought the reform of a corrupt church. But then, after or removed from its context, fi- uh, over the ocean, it left us without, and now 500 years later, without the wherewithal 
to shape a church for mission because it left us with visible church practices. It left us without a hermeneutic of scripture to read scripture engaged in context together. It left us with a salvation which is interiorized and separated from the sanctification of, of God's people. Okay, now, now can we at least say now the Anabaptists at this point, after this is the final piece of my narrative, can offer us resources to help us in this new situation we find ourselves in, the Reformation, divorced from the Euro context of the 14th century, 15th century, and now we 16. need the Anabaptists. Can you give me a, a uh, yeah, vote? Yeah, when I'm, when I'm looking for cutting-edge mission, I'm only about an hour and a half from Lancaster County. Sometimes you just go out, sit in Lancaster County, and look at the models of completely cutting-edge post-Christendom missional ecclesiology. <laughs> Are you talking about the Amish? An old order Mennonites. I look at that and say, "Yeah, there it is." No, I, I, I think uh, there was uh, your, uh, your, uh, the thing that we are called to vote on here. Is, you know, it's longer than a California resolution uh, on the ballot. I, I, I think, uh, I, I, I certainly think that uh, that to have uh, a complete view of the ongoing what needs to be reformed, that all the voices of the Reformation, including the Anabaptist voices as well as the best lights in the Counter-Reformation, I think all those voices need to be heard. Uh, I don't think anyone has a definitive answer. I mean, part of how you know your ecclesiology and how you've developed what's positive in your theology, David, part of that is that's not merely from the streams of the Anabaptists. I mean, our education, what's formed us at this moment, whatever we want to call this, a post-Protestant or a post-modern moment, part of what's given us the tools to try to engage in mission and ministry at this point has come from, you know, the lights of the Reformation, at least of my own. It's the lights of the Reformation, some great Anabaptist thinkers, as well as a whole host of, of Catholic thinkers, both living and dead. So I think the, the good news about the age we live in, by seeing the limitations and the failures of the Reformation, is that we can reclaim, you know, we can have many teachers. Um, and Bill, you would say, Right, like I mean, one of the people that we've learned most about missiology from is from a, a Czech Roman Catholic. Yeah, and, and and some of what I learned about practical community was actually being a, I was a teaching elder for, in a in a uh, in a Mennonite church for a couple of years, and I I cherish that, and I take what I've learned. That's part of what I do in my work, but I don't I don't know that one voice or one particular tradition particularly since we're so shattered and so all sectarian is, you know, you, you know, how you've said it, Jeff. I think we need to listen to all of these voices because uh, there's a lot of shatteredness out there that needs to be regathered, but there's also a lot of light in, in, in the great cloud of witnesses that uh, no one has a monopoly on. So uh, basically, Bill, what you're telling me is each individual has to make up his own mind and uh, critique all of the voices and come up with their own formulation all by themselves. No, nope, I didn't say that. I just talked about a great cloud of witnesses. So can so if I were to answer, so if I were to push you a little bit and say, well, what is the way forward? You would say, uh, I'm, I'm going to try to summarize everything you said in three sentences or less. Uh, we have a whole host of resources in the Reformation, and we have a whole source of resources in the Radical Reformation and Catholics, and we have to come up with our best solution each time, doing the best with all of that and all of the above. Yeah, I, I think because our fathers and mothers, spiritual fathers and mothers, gave us what we have now. 
So if you're not living in the time you're in, you're not anywhere. So I think to deny the reality of a shattered, broken, divided church is we can't do it. I mean, we're, we're, we have, you know, if you're non-denominational, you have all the challenges that you are as a non-denominational independent church, which are many. If you're part of a denomination, then you have all the baggage that comes with that. So there's a sense where all of us have kind of a set task in front of us that is, doesn't have, and by no means you can live into it uh, as a member of the Catholic, the Holy Catholic Church, the One Holy Catholic Apostolic Church, or you can live it as a you know an American individualist. Uh, you know you can't recreate what's been broken before us, but I think part of it is how you position yourself, who you choose to listen to, and in reality is we're all choosing who we're accountable to. There's no bishop telling any of the four of us who we have to listen to. Uh, it may be okay. Yeah. So yeah. So okay. So uh, one one last question: uh, If we have to. We have a broken church. We have multiple sources uh, going back to the Reformation, before Reformation, post-Reformation, Re- Radical Reformation, Catholic. Might I suggest the Neo-Anabaptists give us the best way you, on how— You, you may to suggest all that. that <laughs> —to take all that and do something with it. Yeah, I, I do. But, but, but also there are seeds in your movement that can certainly evolve to about 20 different— heresies uh, and are already there. Now, that's not, that's true about all of us, but I, I think if, if, if you kind of say that we're the ones that have arrived, then, you know, that, that road historically doesn't tend to lead to good places. So I, I think that to me... That we've arrived, but we are, we have a particular way of going forward in the cultural conditions that we are presented with that makes, uh, that offers a way forward. But you're, say, you're saying that the Neo-Anabaptist thing is not a voluntary association, and yet you're a Neo-Anabaptist that's voluntarily chosen to be in the CMA church. So I didn't say it's not voluntary. I never said that. Well, okay. So of the voluntary, affinitive ways to associate, you want to nominate it as the best way forward? I want to say, how do now that we have a volu- basically an irretrievable voluntary sy- uh, system of being church? Everyone's got a volunt. Everyone is an individual making up his or her own mind to become part of something. Now that that's the uh, bequeathed uh, inheritance of the of the Enlightenment, and we're stuck with it. What what is the best way to go forward? Neo Anabaptist formation of political communities for mission of the kingdom. I think. Host club. Yeah, time Jeff. for you to speak. Yeah, in baptism. That's it. What is it? What'd you say, Jim? What'd you say, Jeff? Baptism as a mark of Christendom. Everybody needs to choose Jesus for themselves. Right, Dave? Did you say believer's baptism, adult baptism? Yeah. What did you Yeah. And I I sense that the two guys on the other side of the microphone here might just have a, might have just recoiled a little bit on the, on the, I I just think. I thought we were joking. We were saying the best way to fight Enlightenment individualism is with voluntarist baptism. (laughs) That's strikes me. I thought we were joking. That that is exactly the point. That is the point. So So I got the joke. Yeah, I did too. Okay. All right. Can you go on without me for two minutes? The dog needs my attention. I'll be back in two minutes. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, oh my so I think I think in reality it's not an Anabaptist solution; it's a Baptist solution. You just, I mean, that's that's kind of what it is. And then, you know, I mean, Anna feels you know Neo Anna feels cooler, but it it is it's basically a Baptist solution. That's that's really what he's offering us. It's uh, absence, you know, and that, on behalf of myself too. Like the Anabaptist is comes with a strong 
critique of state involvement of the church as well as uh, pacifism, which I don't think is necessarily part of the tr- the Baptist tradition, although it can be. I'm not saying it isn't. So I think that's for him. It's the strong critique of the establishment church, which is why you know the concern about Christendom is always first and foremost. But I, I agree with Scott that historical Anabaptists aren't necessarily a model for, for mission. And what does that mean about the tradition itself? And so I think there's something to be grappled with there for yeah, sure. Yeah, and I also think those aspects of the those aspects of Anabaptism also are, in a post-Christendom kind of world, I think there is the opportunity for churches that stand in that magisterial tradition to reevaluate and have a much more critical stance towards civic participation. Like, they're not, like, one of the freedoms of the magisterial traditions now is that you don't have to be the chaplain to the world in the same right. way. No, because no. I think, actually, some of the secularization uh, that has come with modernity actually offers an invitation to a much more discerning practice right. practice for traditional sort of Protestant churches. Yeah, uh, no, I agree one hundred percent. I think one of the best things you know <clears throat> that has happened in the uh, yeah one of the unintended consequences of all the negative things that have happened with less church attendance and the marginalization of the church in many communities is that the people who come to church now really want to be there, regardless what you know what denomination or non denomination is. You know, I think there's a sense where you know a lot, some of my work is working with a lot of struggling churches that whether or not they can stay open or not. But what I find is a really vibrant faith. There might you know they may not be able to keep the building going. Um, but the people who gather together are people who are there because they love Christ and 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 have a great care and compassion for their communities. I, I, I think, <clears throat> I, you know, it's, it's easy to critique what's come before us and, and fail to see, and, I, and I'm, a, I'm a huge critic of a lot of things that's come before us, but there was a, there was, there was a lot of right stuff as well that went on in a church that really saw part of its job as caring for its community as part of what it meant to be part of that community and part of that church. I mean, I was part of a church that really was renewed. And frankly, we renewed by doing uh, our missional strategy was to, to kind of act like Christendom still existed. And we we were the parish church of that community. And we uh, decided that we were going to serve this community. We were just going to outserve everybody and show them Jesus that way. And we had a mm-hmm. profound impact on not only the people, but on the institutions in that community. Now, that wasn't our goal. Our goal was to be faithful to Christ. But I just think that, um, to me, there's always— when <laughs> the history of the Church is full of people who come up with, this is the idea for this time. And as a Church historian, Jeff, you know many of the same stories I do, how that turns out. So I just think there should be a cautionary note when we—first uh, <clears throat> of all, when we want to say that the vast majority of Christians in their view of baptism is wrong, um, which would be over a billion Christians. I think that might be a little arrogant. Uh, and I think also to fail to realize that there's still people being converted by the liturgy and by the— Tomas Heli uh, baptized 32 adults at Easter this year Yeah, in, 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 the, in, the, in the Czech Republic. In the Czech Republic. So I, I think— can I, just say, can I just say this, Bill? Uh, I don't know what Holtzclaw said while I was out getting— uh, He said only good things about you. But I got to tell you, no one says that all the Pado-Baptists are wrong, okay? It's just—it was a contextual solution— for a Christendom where everybody were Christians the day they were born and they had the bat, they had the family, they had the church, they had the culture supporting their Christianity. When you are now in democracy, 
or whatever you want to call it, a modern enlightenment individualist democratic world where everybody's expected to make up their own mind and taught that from the moment they're born. Now we need to probably have what's called infant dedication, which means that we're going to do something uh, that joins the church in to dedicate this child into the life with God and promise to uh, raise this child up in the faith and admonition of the Lord, knowing that sometime this this child will grow to the point where they can make uh, an enter in of their own volition and they become part of the process. I know there are other issues involved, by the way, with the uh, uh, baptism of that kind, including those who do not have the mental capacities to do what I'm talking about. There are other ways to talk about the church coming alongside that person. But the no, point Dave, is— Dave, when, were we, when are we saying everybody's a Christian— and infant baptism is the solution. What year? What's that? Well, you're saying the infant baptism is a solution when everybody's Christian and it, it, functionally, you know, there's no more line between the church and the world. Really, what year is that come about? All right, if you're going to try to pull one on me here, uh, Scott, and say that the world never existed, uh, I'm, say- no, no, I'm just saying Tertullian references the practice in 220, and I don't think that was the high, a high era of Christendom. I, I'm not, I, it, it might exist before that, so that's not. Well, well, I guess the question is, and and I grew up actually. I, I how you? I grew up in churches that did not baptize infants. I was not baptized as an infant, and uh, my first child was not either. But he was older when he was baptized. And look what it did to Bill. That's yeah, my case so, for doing yeah. it. <laughs> <laughs> I guess so. But I guess for you then. So baptism is not a sacrament in the classic sense. Then is that what you're saying? Well, uh, I I want to redefine sacrament back to its uh, pre-Constantinian definition. Well, I, no, my definitions of, Baptist, of sacrament do not come from Constantine. They actually come from... Did, Con, did Constantine write a sacrament? I, I, actually, <laughs> I don't... They're not really... I did not they're, they're more, they're more from the kind of the, you know, the kind of the Bible and what Christians have taught. Right. Yeah. Constantine, I was talking about a point in history, not uh, okay, a okay. certain okay. to the writing of a doctrine. Right. Okay, mm-hmm. and what I want to say is the sacrament is more than just a specific ordinance performed in a church under a priest. This Jesus promises to be present in the social realities of the church. I agree with and that. It, I completely agree with that. I hundred percent agree with that. So, hundred and ten. I raise you. Hundred and ten. I don't have any more money, so uh, you win that. You win that hand, Scott. No, I, I totally agree with that. Absolutely. I think, I, and an Augustinian, I mean, for Augustine, sacram, you know, the church is sacramental. Matter of fact, Augustine would say the exact same, would describe the church uh, theologically. The, uh, he'd use different language, but he would agree 100% what you just said there. So, so I want to say it's more than just baptism of either an adult or a child. It's more than just catechesis. It's more than just First Communion. It is the being with children, uh, the church being with their own children, being with children in the neighborhood, being with children in the hurting places of the world. That is where Jesus promises to be present. Right. Well, I know. I, I believe that, too. But are you saying, so there is no—so the sacraments are not really—there are no specific sacraments. That it, Sacrament— No, it, no, there are very specific sacraments. Okay. And are they sacramental? Are they ordinances? They are very sacramental. They indeed promise—Christ promises to work in and through and be present with those sacraments— Baptism is a manifestation of the church's promise to be present with children. So I'm pushing you towards an Anabaptist understanding that it's not just the moment of baptism, although it is very important. 
It is also the process that leads up to that baptism. It is also being with children wherever they are, where Jesus promises to be present, Matthew 18, 1 through 5. Bill, Fitch gets into this in Faithful Presence. So okay. If, All right. if well, you haven't read, read that, you need, read you need book, to get, you know, but, there's three modes. There's three but modes. But I would also say that's not, that's not an, that's not, that the way you talk there is not exclusive to an Anabaptist understanding of sacraments. Right. But somehow it got forgotten after Count Constantine when we sequestered the church. When the, hey, admittedly, you had like 25 million Christians come into the church in about 85 years. Admittedly, you had to make the whole process efficient, put the priests in charge, et cetera, et cetera. And that's okay and that's all good. I'm just saying, pre-Constantine, we saw it as a way of life, not just these moments in the church's life with, with individuals. But I, I learned that in a little Methodist church in West Virginia, not from a pastor because we didn't couldn't afford one. So it's just the people. That's where I first learned that. And infant, ba- words, and, and, and infant baptism was pre-Constantinian. It's, it's at least uh, yeah, twenty. I, again, I think sometimes I, I think you create. I, I feel like you create an argument sometimes where there doesn't need to be one, Jeff. I, I mean, or, I'm sorry, or, Dave. That, that's called yeah. that's called antagonism. Or, yeah. Bill, or Bill, you've just been an Anabaptist all this time, and you just didn't know it. Wow, you're anonymous Anabaptist. Oh, I like there, it. So there, we, there we go. There we go. We just food this podcast with the development of a theory of anonymous Anabaptists coming from the Reformation. Anabaptist knows. I'm Bill. I've been an Anabaptist for 12 years. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> so, I, you know, I, I, I'm still saying the Jesus I met in that little Methodist church, there's not been a lot. I, I've, I've understood it deeper, but uh, uh, there's not a lot been added to it uh, over the years uh, of anything that has changed the profound nature of it. So anyway, that just to me is just an illustration that there's what Newman called Bible Christianity. There's a lot of this kind of Christianity that's in the air. You're talking about Newman, not from Seinfeld, right? No, Newman, no, John, 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 Henry, John Henry. Yeah, yeah. Hey, so so that we don't have to wait 500 years for a 1,000 year anniversary of the Reformation, what if we did a 500 years of the Enlightenment and then complained about capitalism and foundationalism and democracy? Because I know Dave wants to argue about all those things too. So how could we? Mark a 500 year anniversary so it comes up soon. Yeah, we, we should do, we, yeah, we, we could just artificially connect it. Or we could do Menno Simmons' birthday, you know. Any, you know any. <laughs> or we could just say capitalism starts with Calvin. <laughs> we could say that. We'd be wrong, but we could say it. <laughs> I, don't, I think maybe more Franciscans if we wanted to be like that. Hey, when Neo Anabaptist economics, when Neo Anabaptist economics can produce an iPhone, I'm, I'm down on capitalism. <laughs> but until then, I want a little bit of it. Well, you know, well, thank. I, I think we probably. I don't know if anyone else will enjoy this, but I know we did. Uh, I do appreciate you. <laughs> I appreciate you guys making time in your busy schedules to be a part of this. And we will. We we need to do it again. And uh, you you guys can pick the anniversary and the topic the next time. How's that? You know that Dave and I are protesting Constantinianism because neither of us have iPhones. We're going Android all the way. I that's, feel bad that's for our you. Stake in it. <laughs> that's a real protest and <laughs> sacrifice. There we go. <laughs> I just want to say uh, I uh, submit to you. I've learned a lot, and uh, I'm going to try to be nice the next time I'm on the podcast. <laughs> yeah, I know, but I don't know. But you're much more interesting when you're this way. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Don't change. Never change. Don't change. You do, don't change for me at all. I love you just the way you are. Yes. Totally different Fitch when it's not just the bus. All right. Well, God bless you guys. All right. God take, bless you. All right. Take care. Bye, everybody. This we'll was see fun. you next time. Bye. All right.